America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. We are present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, joining today from France as the epidemic gives us just a couple more inches more freedom. And joining us today in New York City is uh, Maria Antonieta Jaquez, uh, counselor at the Permanent Mission of Mexico to the UN and a member of the Mexican Foreign Service since 1994. Her portfolio deals with a wide range of issues. The ones we're going to be talking about are security and disarmament, because she was instrumental in organizing the 2014 International Conference on the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons, a process which culminated in the negotiation of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation and for thinking of of me. Uh, Please call me Tony. Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much. So one of the reasons we want to talk to you, Tony, is because we've had a number of guests on the podcast in recent months talking about nuclear war, talking about nuclear weapons, how countries prepare for Armageddon, why NATO thinks it needs nuclear weapons, why South Asian countries think they need nuclear weapons, and whether they work the way they expected. And a number of them have made the argument that nuclear weapons are necessary for peace, that basically they scare nuclear weapon states off from war or at least from nuclear war, perhaps something in between. It scares them off from the escalations that could get them to nuclear war. You have been a leader of a movement calling instead for getting rid of nuclear weapons altogether, that if you want to avoid nuclear war, get rid of the nuclear weapons. But can you talk a little bit about why you disagree with the argument that nuclear weapons do, in fact, constrain the countries that possess them and make the world a little bit safer? Oh, thank you uh, for the question. I think it is very relevant to talk about these issues lately. Uh, I have heard the podcast and I have also seen the issue raised in mainstream media sometimes as a one-sided argument. And I think it is very important to highlight that there are 116 countries, for starters, that have already signed nuclear weapon-free zone treaties. That means that they have legally binding agreements that have instrumented policy so that they forego the nuclear option. This is uh, an issue, and this is a trend that uh, originated in the 60s, before the NPT even, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and before the Nuclear Prohibition Treaty, the, the Van Treaty, the TPNW, that you were talking about, and before the Humanitarian Initiative. So I just make this point because it is not a matter of whether we disagree on something or not. There is a fact. There are a lot of countries that don't have nuclear weapons. And that doesn't mean that they are more insecure or they have a different international situation or they have an international security problem or they live without problems. So sometimes in several arenas, we hear the point that, yeah, well, these countries that don't have nuclear weapons, they have different responsibilities in the global arena and they don't have a security concern that makes them have this Weapons. Okay, so uh, what I think and I 
think that has to be maybe analyzed uh, a little bit more deeply, is that um, in the end, this type of policy or security policies are based on subjective facts and on political decisions. There is no destiny or geopolitical destiny to have this type of weapons. Before 1945, the world was a nuclear weapon-free zone. There were no nuclear weapons. There were a lot of wars. There were a lot of wars. So that's what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. So the only way to prove that nuclear weapons have deterred or have stopped war would be to have a time machine and go back to 1944 and disappear the Manhattan Project or all the base of knowledge to destroy nuclear weapons. Of course, I'm joking. And then come back and see if there are wars or not. Nuclear weapons have not been used since 1945 in a nuclear war scenario. So all the things that we have related to nuclear weapons are suppositions, projections, and theories based on ideology. And uh, on the other hand, we have uh, many countries adhering to international law and saying international law, especially international humanitarian law, proves that there has to be some set of rules or behavior around the international conflict. And there are weapons that, because of their intrinsical characteristics, cannot be used um, according to international humanitarian law. And those weapons should be prohibited. We are not going to use them. We are not going to go there. So this is another fact. So Tony, a student asked me this question the other day. I'm going to ask it of you. He said, why do we argue that nuclear weapons are that much more dangerous or that much more destructive? I mean, doesn't it depend on the nuclear weapon? And, uh, you know, I know how I responded to him, but I'm curious what your response is. Well, Okay, so nuclear weapons are very devastating. We have the experience, not only of the devastation and the several layers of destruction and impact uh, of nuclear weapons in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, but also the result of 2000 nuclear tests that were done in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And uh, we know that these weapons produce several types of destruction because of the blast, because of the fire, because of the radiation. And radiation is the element that other weapons don't have and make these weapons very, very destructive, the most devastating that human humans have uh, created so far. If we look at the arsenals that exist now, they don't have any comparison with the ones that were tested in the 40s, not even with the ones that were exploded in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They are more powerful, more destructive, and uh, they have a larger yield. Okay, I don't want to dwell on the issue of describing weapons because I don't think that this is the object of the question. But reason why it is another historical fact is that the reason why many countries have not uh, chosen to use or to have nuclear weapons as part of this nuclear security policies, but also the reason why nuclear weapons lie at the basis of nuclear security policies and doctrines of the nuclear processors is the damage that they make and the fear they inflict. And uh, we have been, uh, as human beings, very fortunate not to have more empirical experience of this damage. But many scholars, many politicians coincide that this has been only because of sheer luck, not because of rational policy or international trends in the in the international arena. So we shouldn't let 
the size of the weapon or the size of the arsenals be the measure of fear or contentment prevention of a possible catastrophe. There has to be a principle, which is we should not let a catastrophic scenario produced by a weapon that was man-made and that can be destroyed because it's not a natural event. If it was made by men, it can be destroyed and dismantled. Tony, if we leave aside the counterfactual arguments, which include you know, how many people would have died in wars if we hadn't had nuclear weapons, but if we just look at what you're talking about, where is the momentum going these days? I mean, you have uh, 50 countries or more signing up for the ban treaty. Is the wind really in your sails? Are you being able to create a real new normal or not? Well, more than 50 countries have ratified the ban treaty. That doesn't mean that there are not more signatories. There are more signatories of the treaty. They are on the path to ratification and becoming states parties of this treaty. We think that um, ratification and the process of uh, becoming a party of this treaty depends a lot on legislative priorities and political priorities. It's not a matter of ideological opposition. So many, many countries might not be ready to join, to sign or to join the treaty because they have other priorities in the legislation or because they need national law implement the treaty before ratifying. So I am just saying that plus number of states that we have now is a characteristic that we're not going to have for, for a long time. So maybe this year we will have more parties. Is this on the way to creating a new normal, you said, or a new narrative? Yeah, but I have to insist and I have to go back to the idea that I said in the beginning, okay, already five nuclear weapon free zones with 116 countries in total, already have uh, prohibitions for uh, producing, developing, placement, transferring, of course, using uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, nuclear weapons are not part of the political doctrines of these countries. I have to emphasize the value of nuclear weapon free zones. First, because they are never mentioned <laughs> late, <laughs> lately in mainstream media. And because they were, as I said before, negotiated, or they, the first one, which was Latin America and the Caribbean in a densely populated area of the world, was the product of a treaty, the Treaty of Tlatelolco, that was initiated by Mexico and Latin American countries in the 1960s. I want to emphasize this because of what you said, Hugh, about the trends nowadays and the geopolitical realities of the world. And okay, so the, the Treaty of Tlatelolco was negotiated after missile crisis in Cuba. And nobody can say that Latin America and the Caribbean was void of problems, of uh, security concerns. And that is why they decided not to have nuclear weapons in their territories or produce nuclear weapons. Any country with nuclear capabilities could have developed nuclear weapons on their own or with help of others. And uh, they could have asked a nuclear power because we are talking about uh, the Cold War scenario. So one country could have asked a nuclear power to station or to develop nuclear weapons for them. And in the nuclear war scenario, that would have helped the zero-sum games of the time and uh, might have been the easiest and the free way to go. 
This was not the case. This was a political choice, sovereign political choice made by these countries. And the Treaty of Tlatelolco entered into force, not with all the countries of the region. We had to wait for some years to have all the countries in the region. In fact, Cuba joined until the 2000s. But the Tlatelolco Treaty was already into force. And five nuclear weapons prisons similar to these ones are already in place. The reason why I want to, to focus on this issue is that the normal for more than 100 countries in the world is not to have nuclear weapons and to have them prohibited and to have national policies against the production, the development, and the stationing, or the transfer, or the testing, or helping others place nuclear weapons, or test nuclear weapons, or transfer nuclear weapons in their territory. So that's a new normal for more than 100 countries in the world. And even there are some countries uh, that are not in nuclear weapon prisons that also adhere to this type of principles. There are countries in Europe that have uh, rejected the so-called nuclear umbrella of NATO. So what I'm saying is that it is a political decision and it is a sovereign decision based on international law and international principles. It is not a situation in which everybody has to do the same thing. So this is, this is the reason why we believe that countries can also make the choice of not adhering to nuclear weapon policies anymore. And the last thing I, I want to say regarding the normality is that 100 and plus countries that have joined nuclear weapon free zones over the years also are non-members or parties of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, which is the rightly called the cornerstone of the non-proliferation and nuclear disarmament regime, because until very recently, it was the only treaty into force that talked about nuclear disarmament and nuclear weapons in that way. Because all the parties uh, that are non-nuclear weapon states uh, that have joined this treaty have prohibitions uh, verified by the Organization of the International Atomic Agency in Vienna. So all of them have already prohibited nuclear weapons. All of them have already a one agency verifying that they don't build nuclear weapons. So that's the normal for the rest of the world, even if they have not joined the TPNW yet. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we're talking to Mexican diplomat Maria Antonieta Jaquez about nuclear weapons and nuclear bans. So, Tony, you were talking about the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It was signed in 1968. It came into force in 1970. And what it very much did was uh, cement a have and have not sort of situation, that these are the countries that get to have nuclear weapons, these are the countries that don't. In theory, it commits the countries that have nuclear weapons. They interpret it as eventually slowly, but it's hard to argue that the at least the P5, right, the nuclear weapon states, that have were nuclear weapon states at the time take the long-term disarmament ban very seriously. Now you have the nuclear ban treaty. In principle, as a matter of international law, that ought to require them to, in fact, disarm. Do you think they will? Yeah, I think they will. They have to. It's an international obligation they adhere to. Just one comment on the MPT. 
on what you said. The MPT is not perfect, but um, there are no perfect treaties because in the course of negotiations, the give and take ends up with the, sometimes the lowest possible denominator or a product or an outcome that is not satisfactory to every single of the parties. Uh, nevertheless, the MPT is a treaty that has uh, been extremely effective in curbing uh, the number of countries that possess nuclear weapons. We have uh, five countries adhering to the treaty. The way the treaty calls them is nuclear weapon states. And um, they are also coincidentally the permanent members of the Security Council, the P5. And we have uh, non-nuclear weapon states, which are the rest of the parties, with the exception of three countries that didn't join the treaty from the beginning, India, Pakistan, Israel, and uh, the DPRK left the treaty in 2009. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of debate about the denunciation of DPRK. Okay. But it is an almost universal treaty that has underpinned the nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation regime, as I said before. But it is based on obligations because it's a legally binding treaty. So I disagree with this assertion that there is an interpretation on how to implement the obligations of the treaty because all the provisions of a treaty must be binding on all their parties on all the parties of the treaties. Okay, so the so-called three pillars of the treaty make a negotiating package that from the point of view of the non-nuclear weapon states is indivisible. It is not possible to break it. And we call this the great bargain or the grand bargain, the negotiating package that produced the treaty. And the reason why this is important is because of, again, the perceptions and the sovereign decisions. The grand bargain consists of the countries that didn't have nuclear weapons in 1967 promise not to build them, not to develop them, not to uh, station them, etc. And then they forgo this option and it is prohibited for them. And they have uh, positive obligations under the treaty. In exchange of two things, this is not for free. One is the access to the benefits of uh, nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. The second condition is that the ones that possessed nuclear weapons in 1967 should disarm. It seems to me that you're still always going to be arguing, and you live in New York, so you surely meet people every day who cannot believe that any of the current nuclear states will ever give them up. And yet there are three countries that were building or had nuclear weapons arsenals and stopped, the Argentina, Brazil, and South Africa. I mean, what arguments do these three countries give you, make you believe that one day you'll really get what you're aiming for, this total disarmament in nuclear weapons? I think that these countries, the ones you mentioned, plus others that had nuclear programs experimenting or, or headed to nuclear weapons like Sweden, for example. So these countries are very good historical uh, instances of how this is a choice. Again, and this is a political choice based on the perception of international um, relations at, at the moment in time versus the adherence of principles of international law. So the reason why Brazil and Argentina 
on the one hand, stop their, their programs. I mean, I am not a diplomat of those countries and I don't want to characterize their positions. But one has to look at uh, this country's transition to democratic governments and their adherence to the Tlatelolco Treaty and the, the MPT as they, they became parties to the Nuclear Weapon Free Zones Treaty and also to the MPT. But also they established a very interesting agency, the ABAC, which is an agency of um, mutual inspection of uh, uh, nuclear installations, nuclear facilities. And this mutual uh, trust building and confidence building exercise has helped them uh, adhere to their obligations as MPT parties, but also as parties of the nuclear weapon free zone. In fact, the Nuclear Weapon Free Zone Treaty has an agency in Mexico City that is led by a Secretary General from Brazil. So this is another reason why I have always said that the word never in international relations is very, very, very subjective. And it has a lot, a lot of nuances. Because you could say in the 1980s, Brazil and Argentina will never join the Nuclear Weapon Free Zone Treaty. But they did. And in the case of South Africa, it's a similar case, historical case. So, Tony, I could tell a north-south rich state, poor state story about this. I could also argue against it, right? Because we have India, we have Pakistan. How do you see that? Do you see it through this lens of colonialism and wealthy states and powerful states maintaining their wealth and power? Or do you see it differently? There are some traits that can be linked to this historical divide, but um, the historical divide is uh, between North and South is very ideological and not very factual. For example, in the 21st century, there are a lot of countries of the so-called global South that have more production of goods or manufacturers than some countries traditionally uh, placed in the North and um, the globalization, the trade and, and globalization has blurred a little bit these lines and uh, has uh, left this discussion in a little bit of ideology. But I have to say that the one thing that it is very evident, I think, is that the countries of that have fought colonialism or have fought invasions or uh, have fought for the self-determination of the people uh, have uh, struggled with stories of oppression or uh, the history of liberation of their peoples or independence of their peoples. They have a tendency to nail their national policy and national law in principles of international law that coincided later on with the Charter of the United Nations. And they have a special relation with the so-called superpowers or the military powers in that regard. So it is not a coincidence or it is not strange to look at countries that have a colonial past or that have struggled with their independence movements having a special relation of a suspicion or sometimes mistrust or sometimes lack of trust with nuclear superpowers that in some cases were the colonial powers, but in others weren't. Okay, so this trait is, is present, uh, but I wouldn't characterize it as north and south divide in as much as we can see that it is not about that. It is about adherence to the principles of the charter and to have that as the late motif of your policy and your work. And 
some powerful countries don't adhere to these principles. Disarmament has clearly been central to your career, and this is such a long march. I mean, 50, more than 50 years since the first nuclear non-proliferation treaty. And what keeps you going? Have you had moments in your career that you've seen breakthroughs that no one would have expected? Because no one expects nuclear weapons to be banned. And yet I'm getting the sense that you really think you can get there. How, how, what's feeding that feeling? Well, uh, I had a, a, one of my first uh, bosses, one very, very old ambassador that I had the chance to work with and has already passed away. One day when I was very young and I, I was in a negotiation and he asked me how was it, I complained that it was very boring because we had been uh, raising a comma and adding a comma on the same paragraph for half an hour. And uh, he told me, you know, little girl, if you find that boring, you would have to quit today in time to find another career. Because if you're not convinced to the marrow of your bones, he said, literally, to the marrow of your bones, that that comma that you are placing and erasing in a hundred years' time, when there is no archaeological proof that you participated in any negotiation at the United Nations, that comma in a hundred years' time is going to be a guideline that is going to transform the constitution of a country so that their people live better. And then you are not good for this job. So you have to think about that. Yeah, you're right. This is a very weird feeling. You have to get going. Uh, I am very fortunate, I feel, because first of all, I am not speaking today in my official capacity. I am speaking in my personal capacity, but I am lucky because many of my convictions are the ones of my government. And uh, we have been on the right side of history many times. So I am fortunate about that. But the personal conviction is part of the fuel to keep going. The other part is that I have witnessed in very little time in these 27 years of career that I have, I have witnessed three things. First of all, the change to diplomacy that partnerships with civil society and with academia and with scientists, the partnerships with these entities has brought a new sense or a new shift to diplomacy, especially for international security, international disarmament and multilateral disarmament, okay? So the, the partnership has placed the people at the center of these talks. And uh, we passed very quickly from talking about who had the weapons, who couldn't have them, who says that they deserve the weapons, who says that they need the weapons. And uh, we started to talk about what weapons do and why these weapons uh, should be banned because of what they do. And uh, that was the influence of civil society, the influence of young people, the grassroots activists and the academia and a fact discourse. And this happened very quickly. So this gave a lot of impetus to um, diplomats to talk about different things and to change dynamics and to see the potential in shifting uh, the agenda, shifting the, the things we talk about, the dynamics. So I am very happy that 10 years ago, we were very, very cautious about using phrases like the catastrophic humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. Then we got that into the 
MPT review conference declaration. And now we have to talk about that. Now it's mainstreaming. Now everybody talks about that, even uh, or the humanitarian initiative or the TPNW. So even the ones that oppose the treaty have to talk about it. And that is the beginning of new narratives. And I am not saying that there is going to be a consensus around or a so-called unanimity, because I don't believe that consensus is necessarily unanimity. But I don't think that everybody is going to think the same. I don't want the world to have everybody thinking about the same thing. But what I want is, or what I would like to have, is more countries talking about the right stuff and not about perceptions only, which is the perception of threat and how to solve that perception of threat imposed by only one part of the world. Tony, thank you so much. Uh, we are sadly out of time, but it has been such a pleasure and I think so important to hear your voice and these perspectives injected into the conversation. I think it's indicative of how the conversation is changing. And I'm just so grateful to you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation and for considering also this view. And congratulations on your podcast. It's very, very useful. Thank you. Um, so listeners, if you want to keep an eye on Tony's work and not just uh, on nuclear weapons and how to get rid of them, but on all of the things she does, you can follow her on Twitter. She's at T-J-A-Q-U-E-Z-H. And if you'd like to follow Crisis Group's work on nuclear and non-nuclear crises and conflicts involving nuclear weapon states and not, um, please check out our website, which is crisisgroup.org. You should follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Uh, crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Olaker. That's with a Y. You should check us out on Facebook and Instagram also, where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. And please do be in touch with us. In fact, Tony's presence with us today is the result of request for views from the other side of the nuclear fence. And uh, I think it was a really great thing that group got in touch with us. Do tweet towards us. Do send us messages. We will always react. And also, if you are listening to this program and would like to give us a rating or a review, we'd be very appreciative as well. On iTunes, particularly, because I think that's how they track their podcast ratings. Um, but uh, War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. You should definitely check out some of the others. And big thanks from us to producers Bull Media and to our own coordinators, Rebecca Zeruhun Asifa and Patricia Alonso, who make sure that Olya and I know where we are and what we're doing and getting us up to speed for each episode. Biggest thanks, as always, to you, our listeners. I am really looking forward to talking to you again in two weeks. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.